Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 34. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend, or we could also translate it, hang, the whole law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Now, last week we focused on the first half of this text, specifically the distinction that Jesus makes, that the lawyer makes, and that is all through Scripture, that there are greater laws and there are lesser laws. And we saw last week that there are, in fact, in Scripture, laws which are weightier. And you can tell this in a number of different ways. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, we read Paul denouncing those who neglect to provide for their own family members, and he singles them out as committing a sin that is worse than other sins. He says, but if anyone doesn't provide for his people, and especially his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so here we have someone who, by his action of not providing for the ones that God has placed dependent on him, is actually worse than an unbeliever. We also see the Apostle Paul says sexual sins are worse than other sins. In 1 Corinthians six eighteen to 20, Paul says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? And so we see that Sexual sin being against our body and our body being the temple of the Holy Spirit means that sexual sin is worse than other sin. And Jesus himself singled out certain people and even certain cities as having excelled in wickedness, being particularly wicked. In Matthew 11:20, he says, the Bible tells us that, that Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, says Christ, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted in heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And so we see a level of judgment and a level of sinning of cities, whole cities. Some are worse than others. Uh, and of course, today in, in the way that we speak of different cities, we know that people understand some cities are worse than other cities. I mean, everybody knows it. You know, I keep remarking on the fact that the church is supposed to be the one place that never knows anything. You know what I'm saying? I mean, in the church, we're all supposed to lie. And then we go out of the church and the comedians tell the truth. So if I were to say to you, Sin City, all of you would know what Sin City is, right? 
It's Vegas. Of course, it's Vegas, right? And there are certain cities that are worse than others. And Jesus said that what makes a city particularly bad is a city that had the miracles that he did right in front of them, but they still refused to repent. And he said it will be worse for them than the city that was named in Scripture, and everybody in the ancient world knew it was a paragon of wickedness, and that's Sodom. And so then we go on, and uh, the book of Hebrews is largely a book establishing the superiority of the New Covenant. And in that book, the most sober warnings of Scripture are given. And those warnings that are given particularly single out those who sin against the better covenant, the New Covenant, as deserving of greater judgment, being guilty of greater sin. And then one other text that I think uh, is such a byword among us that uh, we don't ever stop to think about what it actually teaches when we say, well, all sin is equal. There's no sin that's worse than other sin. And yet we all know what Jesus said about the one that makes the little one stumble, right? In Matthew 18, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be thrown in the depth of the sea. In fact, this is... This is so obvious to everyone that if I were to tell you that any man that goes into a high-security prison who has been convicted of molesting little children, that it's likely that man will be seriously injured and probably many of them will be, the whole time they're in prison, in fear of their lives. This is how Jeff Dahmer died. And so even men in prison understand that Offending a little one is worse. It's a worse sin. And so we see that Scripture, that Jesus, that the apostles, that the whole text of Scripture does establish that some sins are worse than others. All right? And it's very important uh, in a day where postmoderns hate distinctions, where there's a great leveling instinct that we make distinctions and that we acknowledge that God makes distinctions. Because one of the things God's given us to help us is warning that at the judgment day, some judgments will be worse than others, and that in heaven, some rewards will be better than others. And that goes entirely against our whole egalitarian leveling instinct. You know, no, no, heaven's going to be all the same. Tim's going to have to listen to me in heaven. Well, that may be true, but that's because the last shall be first and the first shall be last, not because there won't be any last and there won't be any first. All right. Now, that's the beginning of the text, and now we move on. And we move into the second half of the text, which has to do with love. And this week we turn to the actual laws that Jesus has singled out as the two greatest commandments, the two greatest laws. And the laws are what? We are to love God and we are to love our neighbor. We are to love. This is the heart of the law. And the minute I say this, I hope with me, with me you all are singing, right? You ready? Love, love, love. Love, 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 boom, 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 boom. Okay, everybody now. All we need is love. All we need is love. All we need is love. 
Love is all we need. And that song is the song of the baby boom generation. And what happened to John Lennon? When it comes to the command to love, there's nobody that's in any disagreement. John Lennon and Rob Bell and Bill Clinton and Tony Campola are in perfect agreement. All we need is love. You remember what Emerson said? This was back in the days when the wealth of a house was at the table in the form of the silverware. And Emerson said, the louder he talked of his honor, the faster we counted our spoons. And in a society that says that love is all you need and that we all love one another and can't we just all love one another and can't we all just get along, you know, the one thing that isn't true of that society is that there's any love. So we come to this issue of of love and the fact that today everybody talks about love. But yesterday, um, watching a movie clip from the emergent church, which uh, if you don't know what it is, I won't bother you with it. Um, But there was this one woman that was talking, and she was talking about how she and her church are doing things completely different, Um, that that it's a new day, that they're done with uh, the things that have been done in the past. And, you know, you enter into the ethos of what she's getting into, and, and then she begins to talk about love. Now, she wasn't actually using the word love. She was talking about relationships and fellowship and, and community and, you know, all that soft stuff, you know. And I looked at her as she was talking, and I'd heard her pastor, and I thought to myself, you know what's going to happen to this woman is she's going to get bedded down by some other Christian in her church. Now, people, you know that's what's going on in the emergent church. It's filled with sexual immorality because there are no rules. There's no authority. There's no warning. There's no discipline. There's no fear. All of that stuff is done away with. And so what you end up having with all this talk of community and love is what? You end up with the same thing that the baby boomer generation had at Woodstock. It's a bunch of rutting pigs. This is what it is. And so what I think when I hear people talk of love is I think that as Emerson said, the louder he talked of his honor, the faster we counted our spoons. Today, when people talk about love, we do well to hide our daughters and to put on our body armor. Do you understand this? Think of how popular love is today and then think objectively. As a matter of fact, think scientifically about what we are in America today objectively and scientifically, all right? Look at the stats. They don't lie, all right? And what do the statistics tell us about the love of America? Well, they tell us that what? Child abuse is going up like this, right? Child abuse, all right? And they tell us that child sexual abuse is going up like this. I can tell you in my counseling, this is my experience in the church, all right? What else do they tell us? Is rape decreasing? And and, and what about... Number of partners. How about divorce? How about number of spouses? I got yesterday saw an email from a pastor in the Presbyterian Church over in Scotland. He says that, that, that marriage is so far gone 
that today when people come into his church and want to join his church, the most frequent problem he has is that they're living with somebody and they want to join the church. And when he says, well, before you join, you really ought to marry the woman you're living with. It's a complete shocker. It's like incomprehensible to them why the pastor would tell them that they should marry. And that's where we're headed. We're just a little bit behind the rest of the world. Love, love, love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. Okay? And so you look at what's going on in America. You look at the increase in abuse. You look at the increase in divorce. And then you move over to the unborn children and them being slaughtered at the rate of 1.3 million a year. And you think, wait a second. Is this love? Is this love? So can I at least get you, as we begin this time of studying the Word, to acknowledge that maybe in the nation that talks more about love than any, any nation in history, don't you think? I think America talks more about love than any nation in history, that maybe, just maybe, our talk is only talk. Last week I told you that some people take Jesus' words here in Matthew 22 and deny them, completely deny them, by saying, no, there isn't a greater commandment. There's not a lesser commandment. And then some people, I also told you, twist Jesus' words here. So this is the twisting. Some people take Jesus' words here in Matthew 22 and twist them. And they twist them to mean that the New Testament is all about love as opposed to, in distinction to, in opposition to those nasty, mean Old Testament things called commandments. Now, I want to read to you an example of this from a website from a church. So listen carefully to these words. Quote, Jesus' law is much stricter than the Mosaic law, much more difficult to keep, in fact, impossible. If the old law was impossible, Jesus' law is even more impossible. You can't possibly keep His law of love unless you're saved and you have Jesus in your heart, the Spirit of God's love within you, to give you the power and the strength to love others more than you love yourself. Sound good so far? Yeah. Keep listening. The website says that the members of the church, quote, are responsible to endeavor to live by the principles of Jesus' law of love, to love, care for, and interact lovingly and harmoniously with all the members of their home and the community in which they live. This key principle sets the tone for the charter of this church. Unselfish love, the love that puts the needs of others before our own, the great love that lays down its life for others, the love of God in our hearts, that is the heart and soul of this charter, the rules of this church. Sound good so far? Keep listening. It is our belief that Jesus' law of love can also be applied to our sexual interaction with others. Agree with that? Sure. Although Christian scholars throughout history 
have explored this subject. Applying Jesus' law of love to sexuality sets our church apart from mainstream Christian theology. Our founder taught from the scriptures that sexuality is not inherently evil in the eyes of God, and furthermore, that because of those scriptures, loving heterosexual relations between consenting adults, regardless of marital status, are permissible as long as others immediately affected by those actions are not hurt or offended. God created human sexuality, and our church believes our members' love for one another is an expression or illustration of God's love for us. We consider actions carried out in love for one another lawful in God's eyes. It is our understanding of Scripture that Mosaic prohibitions and traditions in this regard, those old nasty things called commandments, no longer apply to those saved in Christ who operate under Jesus' law of love. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the the fulfillment of the law, Romans 13.10. Consequently, adults in our church, be they single or married, are free to engage in loving sexual relationships with other consenting adult church members, provided their actions are loving and with the agreement of others concerned. We regard sex as an emotional and physical human need. Married church members, if they choose, may interact sexually with adult singles within the church because... Quote, the love of Christ constrains them. To help their brothers or sisters in need, those who do not have a companion. Single adults may also sexually interact with other consenting single adults in order to fill this emotional and physical human need. Such giving is regarded as a sacrifice and is respected in the church as being evidence of unselfish love. This is from the website of a cult called The Family. Some of you have heard of this, maybe. It's appalling, isn't it? But you know what I'm going to say next, right? There is absolutely no difference between what these people are willing to say in print and the way that many Christians in practice twist what Jesus says about love. Because many Christians believe that when Jesus says the greatest two commandments are love to God and love to neighbor, we don't need any other laws. They think that since love fulfills the law, we no longer have any need for commandments. That the only moral guidance Christians need is love. All we need is love. And those who believe that hate imposing any commands on Christians. They call any commands legalism. And they condemn as legalism any commands which say, you must do this or you must not do that. Christians, they say, are not under any commands except the command to love one another. Now, can you see the problem with that? When Jesus says that the greatest commandment is love, or when Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law, It does not mean that we don't need commandments. What does Jesus actually say in verse 40 in the text we're looking at? He says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. He does not say that these two commandments undo the other commandments. 
He says that the other commandments depend on the commands to love. These two commandments are foundational to all the rest of God's commandments, but foundations do not make the rest of the building unnecessary. How many of you would like to be sitting in a building, worshiping in a building today that only had a foundation? How many would you would like to live in a house that had a really nice foundation, but there was no house? Foundations don't make the house unnecessary. We can't trust ourselves to know what love is. We can't trust ourselves to know what love even is, apart from the definitions that God gives us in His law. You cannot commit adultery and fornication and murder and steal and covet and claim to be loving. God gives us specific commandments so that we will see in an inescapable and concrete and practical way what love actually is and what love actually does. Do not claim to be loving. And at the same time, violate God's commandments. Love without commandments quickly, very quickly, because the twistedness of our hearts. Love without commandments becomes either licentiousness, do whatever you want, or just sentimentality. In in our culture, what is love defined as? Love is defined as being nice or having warm feelings. But you can be nice and even have warm feelings and at the very same time be guilty of blatantly violating God's commandments. You can even have warm feelings towards God. Love God. You can have warm feelings if all that love is is having warm feelings. You can have love, warm feelings towards God and at that moment be consciously breaking clear commandments of God. I've, we've talked about the blatant denial of God's commandments about sex in the, in the name of Christian love. And there are people in this room, because of the size of this group, I know that there are people in this room right now who are living in a relationship with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, who are blatantly violating God's commands about purity in sexual relationships, and they're doing it in the name of love. There has to be. Here's another way people claim to be, who claim to be Christians do it. Have you ever noticed the kinds of things people say after claiming that they love God? I love God. And I prayed about it and, and decided that God wanted me to be a pastor. Really? But you're a woman. So love for God, warm feelings towards God, trumps clear commands of Scripture. Or, I love God. And I'm close to God. I have fellowship and, and a, relation, a personal relationship with God. And God loves me and God is leading me to get a divorce because, because He would never want me to be unhappy. Or I love God and the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell for everyone who rejects Jesus Christ isn't loving, so it must not be true. I can't love a God who would send people to hell. So love of God becomes the reason that we can shake our fists in God's face and say, no, God, you're wrong. The word love without commandments and without truth is a plastic word. 
that you can shift and twist and shape in any way you want to defend anything you want. The Bible never says that love dictates its own standards of conduct. What Jesus does say is, if you love me, you will what? You will obey my commandments. You will. He does not say, if you love me, do or believe whatever you feel. Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who, what? Loves me. That's what Jesus says. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. The one who keeps my commandments is the one who loves me. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Love does not remove our duty. Love motivates our duty. And love does not even define our duty. The law of God defines our duty. And if we love God, we will keep his commandments. If you were tooling around in your car listening to the radio and you heard a, a new campaign, a new um, revision ad campaign for the um, systematic termination of humans, much like the ad campaigns that were used by the Nazis prior to the Second World and during the Second World War, what would you do? Would you listen to it and enjoy it and be entertained by it when they talk about people who didn't deserve to live because they were useless consumers of food? What would you do? How would you react? Not a trick question. You'd probably be sick, wouldn't you? You'd probably want to turn off the radio, wouldn't you? What if you're turning the radio on and you're listening and all of a sudden you hear a song and it starts... Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. You know that song? How many of you know that song? How many of you turn it off every time you hear it? Who was worse? Adolf Hitler or John Lennon? Who was more antichrist? All we need is love. This is what they gave us. What is it to love? What does it mean in our text to love your neighbor as yourself? What are the evidences that we understand to be the love of our neighbors? Well, we care for their needs. We help them. We share our assets with them. We watch their house when they're away. It says that the second commandment is like the first. So how is it like the first? How are we loving our neighbor like we love God? Well, this is kind of a tricky question for us to understand, isn't it? It's a little bit tricky because does God need our care like our neighbor does? Does he need our assets? Does he need our help? Does he need us to watch his house when he's away? Is this God's house? 
Where did God live when we were meeting over at Grandview? When your children are running in the halls, do you stop them and say, this is God's house, you shouldn't run in God's house? Or do you say, this is inside, you shouldn't run inside? Is this God's house? Mike Bowles has gotten me, has gotten me to call this building the church house. So I want all of you to, from now on, in deference to Mike, refer to it as the church house. It's a great expression for, for where the church meets. But we are God's house, aren't we? We are his house. He dwells, you know, when Stephen was preaching in his, not Stephen Baker, but Stephen, uh, the deacon, in the book of Acts was preaching he, preaching, he told the men that God doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands, does he? The question is tricky because while God doesn't need our help in any of these areas, the fact is that he expects us to give grace and love to our neighbors because he expects us to imitate him. He is the constant giver of love and grace. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, When the Son comes in His glory, He'll separate, separate the people as the sheep are separated from the goats. And He'll say to the people, Come you, blessed of my Father. He says, Come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He's talking to the sheep. And He says, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous answer, you know, they answer, when? When did this happen? When he says, well, as in, in as much as you did it to one of these, the least of mine, you've done it unto me. And so we see that the second command here is like the first in that we love God by loving our neighbors and by loving one another. We fail in these responsibilities. We fail regularly in them. But there is one specific point of the demonstration of God's love that we are particularly loath to imitate. There's one point that we don't want to do. We like to do the things that are positive. Sometimes we don't because it might cost us money. And it might cost us time. And it might be that we're tired. Maybe that we're tired and it will cost us energy. But there's one area of God's character and one area of work that he does that we're loath to imitate him in. And that is that everyone that God loves, He also does what to? He disciplines or chastises. And so when we look at the book of Hebrews, we see that we are supposed to, Hebrews 12, 3 and following, we are supposed to consider Him who endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that we would not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have... And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, quote, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And he goes on and he says in verse 11, all discipline is for the moment, for the moment seems to be, for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. 
Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Well, at this point, I'm telling you that we're supposed to discipline one another and discipline our neighbor because this is what love is and this is a demonstration of us imitating God because God disciplines us. We are supposed to discipline. And you say, well, you just read from Hebrews, Dave, and that's God talking about himself. That's not God talking about us. That's God talking about what he does. What's the context of this verse? Do you remember? What's the context of the beginning of Hebrews 12? It's coming right after Hebrews 11, right? You're good. It's coming right after Hebrews 11 where Jesus talks about those men who have faith. Men of faith. And the the 11th chapter ends with these words. It ends with the words... um, What more can I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Right? So why does, what does that have to do with God's discipline? For all of the things that they did, is that, God, is that why God then follows it up by saying he disciplines who he loves? What's that all about? You make the connection between chapter 12 and chapter 11. The connection is the, connection is the cross. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Why is the connection the cross? Well, why did Jesus go to the cross? Do you know why he went to the cross? We've been hearing it preached to us the last few weeks in Matthew. It's Tim saying over and over again, Jesus was setting it up, setting it up, setting him up. He was making sure that at the right time they would kill him. Right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But the cross came for a real specific reason. Why did all those people suffer in chapter 11? They suffered for a real specific reason. Why was that? Were they being persecuted for helping their neighbors? Was Jesus persecuted for being nice and for feeding people who were hungry? Were those people persecuted for the nice things that they were doing? What were they persecuted for? They were persecuted because they imitated God in disciplining those around them. Jesus was persecuted and killed, put to death, because as God, he was doing what his character called him to do, and that was to discipline the people around him, to tell them no, to say difficult things to them, to say hard things to them. They were persecuted for helping their neighbors. They were persecuted for loving those around them. 
And they loved those around them by doing things that those around them would hate to have done. Think about the parable of the Samaritan. Perhaps their neighbor was a Samaritan. And they helped their neighbor. And the Jews around them hated them because they helped the Samaritan. Do you understand? What if their neighbor was a black man in Mississippi in the 50s? And they cared for their neighbor. And they were a white man in Mississippi in the 50s. Would they be persecuted for doing something that God commanded them to do? Can you see how loving their neighbor would be offensive to those who were wicked and hated God and were filled with sin? Do you see how our obedience to God's command to do what He says and to testify before men and to be salt and light in this world will cause people to look at us and hate us? But faithfulness to our neighbors, loving our neighbors... Loving our neighbors demands that we tell them. Loving our family, loving our friends, loving our neighbors, loving our co-workers demands that we tell them the truth. That we live the truth in front of them. And it will be an exhibition that they will appreciate quite often. And that will bring on us what is called here in the book of Hebrews, discipline. Difficulty, adversity, trouble. If you need a more specific example from Scripture, a more explicit, Matthew 5, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. We have to discipline. We have to say no. We have to speak the truth. If we really do love people, we have to speak the truth. If you want more verses, look at Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Look at Luke 17, 3 and 4. Look at James 5, 19 and 20. Remember the joy set before Jesus. What's the joy that's set before you? What's the joy set before you so that will make you endure your cross? Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So what David was telling you was that love always involves discipline and that you're not loved by God if you're not disciplined by Him. If you don't recognize the discipline of God in your life, you are not loved by Him, or you aren't seeing discipline for what it is. It may be that you are being disciplined by God, but that you don't recognize it. But the Bible says, those whom the Lord loves, He chastens. And so that gives 
a superstructure to the love of God, doesn't it? We know from that that the love of God never comes without discipline, don't we? I mean, this is just what the Bible says. This is not us inserting our opinions. And so if you're going through discipline, you should regularly have this conversation in your mind. Is God disciplining me? I hope he is because, and then you think immediately, no, I hope he doesn't. That's at least what I think all the time. You know, I hope God will discipline. No, I hope he doesn't. I worked under a pastor out in Boulder, uh, Bob Erder, whose life was charmed. He had a wonderful church, wonderful family, wonderful friendships. Everybody respected him. And I remember sitting at the table in staff meeting the year I worked there and having Bob say one day, you know, it makes me very uncomfortable that I don't suffer. Because he said, you know, I wonder if God loves me. And, you know, everybody said, oh, oh yes, Bob, God loves you. Well, then I went off to seminary. You know what happened to Bob? Bob, and I've got to remember how this works. I think Bob's wife got cancer. I, I could have this wrong, and illustrations are often wrong. Um, but what I distinctly remember is that either Bob or his wife got deathly ill, and so one of the other was in the hospital visiting him, and then almost immediately the other one got deathly ill and was in the hospital in a bed next to their spouse. And shortly afterwards, Bob's wife died. And there are other things that happened to Bob's wife that I won't talk about. But I mean, from that point on, his life was not, not, not easy. And you think, did Bob remind himself as he went through those final couple of years that God was loving him? Do you remind yourself that the love of God has a superstructure, it has a skeleton, it has substance. It's not just love, 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 all we need is love. It is discipline. And so you go into the emergent churches where they talk all about relationships and community and, and all this soft love stuff, and you look at this woman and you think, is anybody protecting her? That's what should come to your mind, that a church that doesn't discipline the people that always come into the church because the church has easy marks, people that you can easily be uh, predators on. That the church should discipline as God disciplines, that you and your relationship as a father with your children should discipline them so they know that they're loved. And all of a sudden, now, when we hear Jesus say, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of a sudden, we have much, much more understanding of what Jesus is saying when he tells us to love. It's not John Lennon. It's not imagine all the people living in harmony. Do, do, do. But it is work. Now, let me ask you this question. If love is work, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself, is it work that you can do? <laughs> gotcha. No. You can't do it. Now, how does that work? How is it that God would command us to do something that we can't do? If he tells us to love him, then we must be able to do it, right? You know what's fascinating? 
God loves to give us jobs that we'll fail at. And do you know that that's the door, the entry door to the Christian faith? Do you know that you enter the Christian faith through hopelessness in your own inability to do anything that pleases God? And love is the perfect example of something you can't do. And that's why everybody writes sappy lyrics about it in Hallmark cards. That's why you got the emergent church, you know, just talking about relationships and, and storyline, all this gunk. That's why you have lectures, you know, speaking it to the people that they want to prey on. That's why America's filled with love talk, because America realizes that there is no love in America. And so then what is the response? Well, the response is that we, what? We love because he first loved us. I get so tired of hearing Christians talk about how non-Christians show us up in their love. You know, there's so many Christians that talk about how godly non-Christians are. And always what they're they're pointing to is the love of non-Christians. Well, they just show us up with their love. But what kind of love is it that they're pointing to with non-Christians? It's always the love of the world. In other words, it's the cheap stuff that you do to look good. You know, it's the love of saying that homosexuality is just part of the diversity of sexuality that God's made. And, and, and I, I embrace homosexuals. And, and, and then the Christian trots up like, like a good boy and says, you know, they just put us to shame. And it's like, what? You know, we have diversity on the campus of IU. That's, uh, that's my favorite one. IU is a paragon of virtue. And the virtue principally of inclusivity and pluralism and all that stuff, right? And you go down onto the campus of IU and you got black teeth stubs coming out and you live in a double wide. Do you think they love you? You listen to country music? What love does the world have? What love does it have? What love does IU have? Does IU love the intelligent design professor? What love does your neighbor have? You know something? You feel hopeless to love the way God calls you to love. Don't be intimidated by the world. The world is filled with hypocrisy. A nation that is filled with rape and sexual abuse and divorce and abortion and euthanasia and spina bifida babies left to starve to death is not a nation that knows the first thing about love. And don't you ever be intimidated by this world. It doesn't know anything about love. And neither do you. You know what love is? Here it is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation for our sins. That's love. The entry door to the Christian faith is the hopelessness that you feel in your heart now thinking about what hypocrisy we have in talking about love. And then you look up. And it's not until you look up that you begin to see what? Well, you see that greatest image of the Sistine Chapel that even pagans copy, 
which is that Christianity is the only religion in the world that has the arm and the hand of God reaching down. And it's reaching down because we can't begin to reach up. Here it is, love, not that we love God. Do you get that not? Not that we love God. But that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. That's love. And brothers and sisters, when you feel hopeless about your ability to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, then you have the ability of looking up and seeing the hand of God, the Son of God, the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ. And then what? Then you discover the truth that what we, 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 we love because he first loved us. Here it is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. We love because he first loved us. Herein is love to obey his commandments. And all of a sudden it all gets clear, doesn't it? He loved us, therefore we are able to love. He loved us when we were his enemies, and now we are able to love, and this is love, to obey his commandments. Why does God want to be loved? Isn't it sufficient to obey his commandments? Well, can you obey his commandments without love? Stephen said, no, you can't, can you? I can't, can I? So why does God want to be loved? Do you know why God wants to be loved? Because God is never content to have the obedience of slavish fear. Do you know what God wants from you? What God wants from you is your heart. Do you know what we think God wants from us? We think that God wants our external conformity. Why does God want our heart? You know why he wants our heart? He wants our heart because he wants our will. But really, can we give him our will? No, because it's impossible. It's a work that is beyond our ability, isn't it? It's very interesting what Calvin says at this point. Note, this is Calvin. He says, when God requires our love, he means by this that only the free service of our wills is acceptable to him. Let us therefore learn that the love of God is the beginning of religion, for God will not have the forced obedience of men, but wishes their service to be free and spontaneous. Now, how does it happen that the man that's known across church history as being the one that only believes that everyone is in bondage speaks such of freedom? You know, what's interesting about us 
it's interesting that we always think that God's mind is limited by our minds, that God's definitions have to submit to our definitions, that God's sense of fairness has to comport itself to our sense of fairness, that, that the scientific method must define God's creative action. And one indication of that, I think, is how many of us are intelligent design people because it gives us such combinations, such good combinations of both academic respectability and a, a sort of kind of belief in the Bible. You know? And so we always want to sort of hedge our bets and be halfway in between God and man. And so when it comes to freedom and love, we think, well, you know, um, God... When, when God deals with us, God has to deal with us in a, in a way that maintains our freedom. And what I mean by freedom is what the United States of America's Constitution Declaration of Independence means. You know, the truth is that we can't love unless God first loves us. And the truth is that's freedom. That when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, we are then made free to love God freely. And the only way we can do it is when God sets his affection and love on us. We don't have any freedom until then. I want to I make one final application of this text. Kierkegaard says this. He says, God would be loved, therefore he wants Christians. You're all with me, right? God would be loved, therefore he wants Christians. To love God is to be a Christian. Are you with me? Now, man's knavish interest, in other words, our despicable habit, consists in creating millions and millions of Christians, the more the better, all men if possible. For thus the whole difficulty of being a Christian vanishes. Being a Christian and being a man amounts to the same thing, and we find ourselves where paganism ended. Christendom has mocked God and continues to mock him just as if to a man who's a lover of nuts, instead of bringing him one nut with a kernel, we were to bring him tons and millions of empty nuts and then make this show of our zeal to comply with his wishes. Isn't that beautiful? To be a man and to be a Christian is the same thing. Isn't that a perfect definition of American Christianity? To be an American and to be a Christian is the same thing. To be a Republican and to be a Christian is the same thing. And then we think about what has happened overseas. We think of what has happened in England where what? You have 90, 95% of the people baptized when they're babies, right? And how many in church on a Sunday morning, huh? How many? 5 to 10%? Less than three. All right. So what's going on here? Well, one of the most consistent ways that we have of making a show of giving God the love he wants and then not giving it to him at all is by engaging in religious ceremonies. And one of the most direct applications of this is don't you ever think that by being baptized and taking the Lord's Supper and being a member of a church that you have even begun to give love to God. Baptism doesn't save you. You're not saved by being in church on Sunday morning. You're not saved by taking the Lord's Supper. You're not saved because the preacher respects you. 
You're not saved because you have a pastor who preaches tough. If you don't love God, he says that your religious worship and ceremonies are a stench to him. And you know, the Old Testament is filled with this warning. That's what the prophets talk about over and over again. Amos 5:21. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You know how we'll know if a revival comes to America today? True justice will roll. True mercy. Because the man who loves God is a man who loves the creatures that God has given his image to. And he loves them when they're unborn and in a womb, and he loves them when they're old and decrepit, and he loves them when they're ugly and fat, and he loves them when they're stupid and ignorant and listen to country music. And he loves because he was first loved. If you want to love God, look at the cross of Jesus and see Christ hanging there with his blood pouring out of the wounds. And realize that Jesus Christ is shedding his blood for you. And as you see the cross of Christ, then you will see that you don't deserve it. But that he hangs there saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And as you fall in love with God through his Son, you then will have the ability of really, really loving me. And if you can love me, then you can love Stephen J. Gould, and you can love Bill Clinton, and you can love Rob Bell. That one will be hard. You can love Tony Campola. And you can love the married women that are able to have children. And you can love the guy that's better than you at soccer. And you can even love the husband that committed adultery on you. And then you'll know you're a Christian. How? By your love. the elders would come forward for the Lord's Supper, please. I'm going to read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul writes, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this 
in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink of it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes again. Brothers and sisters in Christ and those of you who do not yet know Christ, we celebrate what's called open communion, which means that you don't have to be a member of this church to come to the table and eat and drink. Um, The only thing we ask is that you are a member in good standing of a Bible-believing church. And that might be a little bit off-putting to you. You might wonder, well, what's that about? Well, it's not to be an obstacle if you're in between jobs and in between homes and You know, America has lots and lots of people that move a lot, and we don't want to be an obstacle on that matter. So if you're in transition, understand that this does not apply to you. But there are some who regularly come and uh, worship with us who are not in transition but actually are opposed to ever submitting to the authority of the church. And so they don't join. They don't promise to submit to elders anywhere. And then they want to come to the Lord's table, and my calling is to tell you, you may not. And immediately you think, well, that's not very loving. And I say, oh, yes, it is. And you say, why do you say, oh, yes, it is? Well, the answer is because I pay brutally for saying this to you. So you know you're being loved right now because you always make me pay for saying it. And so I must love you. Because you always make me pay for saying it. The reason I say this is God has been so kind to me in disciplining me with elders and pastors. And my mother, she was a, she was a wonderful disciplinarian. And I don't want you, any of you, to be robbed of the discipline that God will use to love you. And so if you don't... If you, if you won't accept his discipline, you may not come to this table because I love you and he loves you and that's the discipline he has for you today. <laughs> and when you learn that discipline and put yourselves under the authority of elders of a particular church, these, these are the, the elders here, and it can be any church that's Bible-believing. It doesn't have to be these ones. When you do that, then I'll have the joy of welcoming you to the Lord's table to have fellowship with all of us who submit to God and to those he has placed over us. And so let us go before the Lord in prayer, thanking him for this meal that he has prepared for us and commanded us to eat. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who admittest your people into such wonderful communion, that partaking of the body and blood of your dear Son, they should dwell in him and he in them, We, unworthy sinners, approaching your presence and seeing your glory, do abhor ourselves and repent in dust and ashes. We have grievously sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have broken our past vows. We have dishonored your holy name and are unworthy of the least of all your mercies. And yet now, most gracious Father, have mercy upon us for the sake of Jesus Christ. Forgive us all our sins. Purify us from all uncleanness in spirit and in flesh. Make us able heartily to forgive others as we ask you to forgive us. And grant that we may after this serve you in newness of life 
to the glory of your holy name. O Lamb of God that takest away the sins of the world. O Lamb of God that takest away the sins of the world. O Lamb of God that takest away the sins of the world. Grant us thy peace. O God, who by the blood of your dear Son has set apart for us a new and living way into the holiest of all, grant to us, we ask you, the assurance of your mercy and sanctify us by your Holy Spirit, that drawing near to you with a pure heart and an undefiled conscience, we may offer to you a sacrifice in righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.